2: I'm Dave Hendrick, joined by the returning Mr. Carl Matchett. How are you, sir?
0: Rusty and in need of a big old
2: preseason. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Not as good as you. I haven't been globetrotting for the last fortnight, but I am doing well. How was your holiday? Was it good? Was it everything you hoped that it'd be?
0: It was lovely and sensational and very, very tiring. And now I'm in need of the fabled second holiday to
2: recover from the first one. Yeah, that's exactly how I felt when I came back from Leon. I needed like a fortnight off just to recover. Um, Right, you have been away, and I hope you've had your mentions turned off, you've had your notifications turned off, and you've been ignoring football. So rather than talk about anything that's currently going on, to give you a chance to catch back up to the world, I thought what we could do today is run through the Discord. We've got a whole bunch of questions that have come in. Mm. So because we're terrible at this, we've sort of let this go quite a bit. So what we're going to do is start on the 10th of June, which is almost three weeks ago, and go with the questions from there. So the first one is from Sydney Chilla. I was thinking about Haaland to City. I know he's good, but how much of an upgrade is he on Aguero, or is he even an upgrade? Will he actually make a difference in big games, or just make their goal difference be- better? Has he even played many big pressure games?
0: Um, I, I've said on here, I'm a big Harland fan. I think we have to acknowledge, obviously, as is always the case with fairly young players, that there's still a lot more to come from them in terms of match development and playing in the biggest of games, obviously, as their career goes on. But yeah, he definitely has played in, in big pressure games, depending on how you define those. Obviously, if you're talking about, you know, Champions League semifinals and finals and cup finals and matches which can decide the title and all that, then maybe not so much, uh, at least outside of... Um, Playing for Salzburg, but I don't think that that's the only way you can say that he's been a big pressure match. You know, uh, any any time that he has taken to the pitch against Bayern or in the big um, grudge matches that they've had in Germany, or even as a as a younger player when he was playing back in Norway, you still have big pressure games there. It's just relative to the standard that you're at. Obviously, um, debut for Norway and so on; these are all big pressure games, and you got to think back to when he came to Dortmund right at the start. Obviously, there were mitigating circumstances at the time in terms of uh, behind closed doors and the Bundesliga was the first match back, but that did mean that all eyes were on him because he was that big uh, sign that that winter and he came in, I think it's fair to say, hit the ground running. He was scoring at a rate of about one every 15 minutes for a while. Um, so, yeah, I, I do think that pressure games, big match situations, it's not really a problem for him. He's got a really, really good mentality and on the pitch at the very least, I don't think that there's any issue there at all. Talking about how much he is an upgrade or not on Aguero, quite a different type of forward, to be fair. Um, I don't think you're going to get a a very direct comparison between the two. Sure, they can overlap in different ways and things that they do in terms of being in the penalty box and finishing and being a match winner in those kinds of uh, poacher sort of situations. But I think there's a lot more to... Haaland's game now outside the box than there was to Aguero's when he was at Atletico Madrid, for example. Mm-hmm. He was very, very much a run off the back of the defenders, get into the box and be a you know a, a creator and a goal scorer inside the last third, really. Um, but there could be loads more that comes to Haaland's game. We've seen how Pep likes to develop his forwards. We've seen Haaland score goals, which have been everything from two-yard tap-ins to running from 70 yards down the pitch on a counter-attack. You know? There's All kinds of ways that this player can still go. He's always going to be a nine. He's always going to be a centre forward. He's not someone who's going to work in off the wing. I wouldn't imagine nothing like that. But there's still a lot to his game. Upgrade on Aguero, we can't really tell until we're a couple of years down the line, at the very least, because Aguero was there for such a long time, contributed so much to that team. And especially when it wasn't great. You know, He came in at a time when they were still building towards what they wanted to be, obviously and um, was involved in some of their most iconic moments in getting there as well. So loads and loads of games which have to be played before we can say how good he is or isn't. Uh, certainly in, in relation to, to Aguero, the one basically a legend of the club, isn't he? Maybe, maybe their greatest ever player. I'm not mm-hmm. really sure how you would um, talk about that outside the club. Obviously, people like David Silver and Vinny Company are very big with their fans as well. Um, but I don't think that there is really any doubts about how good or effective Haaland will be for them over the longer period of time. whether he ultimately stays better or worse than Aguero, I don't really think will make too much difference. It'll just be great.
2: Yeah, I I am kind of swung to agree with that. Now, I do think, you know, you've also got to factor in which Aguero are you talking about? Are you talking about peak Aguero or the last couple of years Aguero? Because the one he's replacing is the last couple of years Aguero. They're not expecting him to walk in and be say, 2015-16 Aguero, or 2018-19 Aguero. They're expecting him to be an upgrade on what they had, say, in the last two seasons he was there. And it's the same thing with, say, Calvin Phillips. Like, is Calvin Phillips as good as Fernandinho was at his peak? No, but he's a far better player than Fernandinho was in the last couple of years he was there. Therefore, he is an upgrade on what they've just had. And I think the same goes for Haaland. I think Haaland now is better than what we saw in the last two seasons of Aguero, even though his goal return in 1920 was very good. I still think this version of Haaland is better than that version of Aguero. I think the big thing is they're going to have to adapt to him. Yeah. They're going to have to find new avenues of creating Haaland chances because Haaland chances and Aguero chances are not the same thing. And Haaland's chances and the type of chances you were looking to create last season with known number nine are different things. So they're going to have to alter how they play. And that may be where there's a bit of a sticking point. Now, it's not going to be a knock on him. And eventually, they will figure it out because Pep is too good and the players are too good not to. But the thing is, he's walking into a team where He's going to have Kevin De Bruyne, Bernardo Silva and Phil Foden creating chances for him. And that immediately gives him three world-class options for balls that will come into him. They'll all find different ways to get him chances. So I expect that he will hit the ground running as he did at Salzburg, as he did at Dortmund. And I think it will get better. Over time, I think he will get better, obviously, as he ages, as he develops, as he gets a bit more mature, as he masters control of his body a little bit more. The only concern I have, which is the same concern everybody had with Aguero throughout his time at City. Can he stay fit? That's the big question, Mark, over over Haaland. Can he stay fit? And if he does, we know he's going to be great because he's a great player. And they will find ways to make the most of him. I I suppose it's just a matter of how long he's there, isn't
0: it? Well, yeah, that's the other thing. I can't really compare someone to Aguero if he's only there for two seasons and then it has gone, you know. Mm. Um, But like I said, we can't do anything about that. And I don't think that people should be too worried about that, to be perfectly honest. Even goal to goal in their first season and all the rest of it, it doesn't make a difference. It's a different team now. It's a different expectation level. It's a different setup in the, the support and players that you've just mentioned. I wouldn't be surprised if in the first you know, few weeks, few months that they are trying to integrate him into the team, if the Bruyne is effectively given free license to play somewhere between a 10 and 8 and wherever the hell he wants. Because yeah. that is the player who, outside of all Man City's really good build-up play and really deliberate positional work and everything else, he's the one who can just get the ball and deliver it how it needs to be delivered mm. to a person. Whether it's Mars who's in the middle, it goes curving from right to left, let's say, onto his outside of his boot. If it's Sterling, he'll play it much lower. If it's Gabby Jesus, he, he might just play a through ball down the channel. De Bruyne is the one who will pick the pass that it needs, the delivery that it needs, from any area of the pitch. And you could feasibly see, even if it doesn't last this way all the way through the season, that they would be much more like um, a Gerard Torres 9-10 at least yeah. to start with, just to, yeah. just to ease him into the team, basically, and do a, a fairly you know, normal number nine's job with someone supplying him from behind.
2: That's actually what I've been thinking as well, that he'll play as, a, that De Bruyne will play as a 10 with Rodri and Bernardo as a double pivot. Phil Foden wide on the left because Foden is actually a very good crosser with the ball and he can angle crosses here, there and everywhere. Now, Haaland's not as good in the air as people think he is, but Foden doesn't need him to be good in the air. Foden will put the ball in behind the defence and do it quick and do it early, and Haaland will feast off of those. They will have a question mark over who plays off the right. Mares is probably the the likely starter right now, but I, I think, think he's I'm, going to be. I think he's going to be really good. Yeah, yeah, me too. I don't think there's any doubt. Like, about the the that thing actually, is, Carlos, I don't think he's as good now as Aguero was when they bought him, but I still think it's going to be a lot easier for him to get. 30 goals the way Aguero got in his first season, because this is a better City team than the one Aguero walked into.
0: Yeah, for sure. Like I said, they were still building towards what they wanted to be when Aguero joined, and he was still um, not the finished article at all, Like, but the team wasn't either. Like I say, this is there's no point in comparing even goal to goals in the first seasons and all that, because it's just a completely different uh, context, other than the fact that they play same position and the same club. But I think even if you think early on in the season, if they're just looking for, as I've said before, I think the first half of this coming season is just going to be about points on the board. You just have to hit the ground running and you've got to rack them up before the World Cup because afterwards it's really difficult to know what will happen with uh, player fatigue or absences, injuries, mm. who comes back in good form, who doesn't, all that kind of stuff. You can't really worry about it. But before then, before the World Cup, I think between August and mid November, you've just got to get as many points on the board as possible. And in that regard, I think the Phillips signer makes more sense to me because you can double pivot him and Rodri and even then use Bernardo on the right-hand side and all the rest of it. And you've got a really good platform. It might not be the perfect ball retention, circulation, domination of matches. It might just be more functional to get the points on the board, to be perfectly honest. And then you worry in that sort of second pre-season that we're going to have, about people like Haaland are not going to be at the World Cup. Um, a whole bunch of them are not going to be at the World Cup, same as Liverpool. And you kind of worry a little bit more about the tactical integration and um, trying to impose your style and, and the way you want to play, maybe a little bit more in that period, once you've got you know 15 wins out of 16 or whatever it is at that point.
2: Yeah. And look, if Pep wants, he could easily roll out a 4-4-2. He could say to the Bruyne, you go play, play wide in the right, but roam from there. Phil Foden, you do the same off the left. Haaland and Alvarez up front or Sterling if he sticks around it looks like he might go to Chelsea but Haaland and one up front and then we're going to get Penseo from right back and if they sign him Cucurella from left back and they're going to bomb forward and we're going to have Phillips and Rodri holding in midfield we have our centre back pairing Diaz and Laporte that block of four will keep everything tight at the back and the rest of you just go go and create chances for this fella get the ball to him as quickly and as often as you can, and he will score the one thing I'm interested to see is how he copes with the extra physicality in the Premier League as opposed to the Bundesliga now it's not this enormous gulf that some people would have you believe but I do think center backs will be a little bit more physical with him because they're going to have to be you can't really play off him you 've got got to get up tight to him and try and uh, muscle him sound silly because he 's a monster but You've got to try and knock him off his balance quite early and use that little split second while he tries to regain his composure to get to the ball ahead of him. I think it's going to be fascinating. Uh, We'll move on. Next question is from Harry Welchie: Who wins if these two teams played each other? So this is the, one of them is the Pep Barcelona. Valdez, Alves, Mascherano, Piquet, now Puyol should be there somewhere, Uh, Abidal. Busquets, Xavi, Iniesta, Via, Messi, Pedro. And the other one is Arrigo Sacchi's AC Milan. Galli in goal, Tassotti, Baresi, Costa Curta, Maldini. He's put Baresi and Costa Curta on the wrong sides, and the pedant in me insists that that get changed. Um, then a midfield of Donadoni, Rijkaard, Colum- um Ancelotti, and Colombo, and then Rude Hullett off Marco van Basten. Um, who are you taking, Peps Barca or Saki's Milan? Peps Barca. I think this is,
0: if you take the, the the stereotypes and the very best players or the very best partnerships, this is kind of going to be the, the final third of Barca against the defensive third of Milan, isn't it? In terms of where the match is going to be one and on, one or not one, I should say. Um, and I would back this front three. I think they were really, really good. Again, being pedantic, via Pedro wrong sides, mm. um, but. This attack and this midfield supplying the attack was at its time utterly astonishing to watch. They were just so, so dominant. I think it's easy to forget that in the following years, when you know Spain started to be quite dominant at international level, and then other people tra- started trying to copy the, the the way that Barca were playing, and people started talking about tiki taka being boring and all the rest of it. This, when they started this team. This was not tiki-taka. This was not boring. This was phenomenal to watch. You could not touch them. They were so quick to win it back, and it took absolutely ages to box them in to try and win the ball back off them. And as good as the, obviously, the Milan team is you know, one, of the, one of the very finest. We've spoken about this particular team a number of times and did a two-hour podcast on them one time, if I remember rightly. Yeah. Um, I love it, but I do think that that Barca side was just a level above on the ball.
2: I think the Milan team would win. I think the Milan team would win. I think defensively, I think that's one of the very few defences that could have lived with that Barca front three because they could go to Savi, Costa, Curta and Maldini, three of the best 1v1 defenders of all time. They could man-mark the Barca 3 leave Baresi as a sweeper, have Rijkaard sit in front of them to stop the through balls through. You've got Colombo who will chase Danny Alves back all day long. Then you've got Donadoni and Ancelotti as just immensely good on the ball, but incredible work rate to hassle Xavi and Iniesta. I think that I think that Milan team would from a physical point of view cause this Barça team quite a few problems. I don't think that Barcelona defence could cope with Van Basten and Huller. I don't think they could cope with them at all. Van Basten, too clinical. Huller, just too good at everything, and as 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 good a physical presence of, as we've ever seen in the game. Like six three, incredibly graceful, incredibly powerful. And then people always said, "Oh, like Zidane, amazing ability on the ball for a guy who's six one six two." Well, up was six three and equally as good on the ball, so I think that Milan team defensively is maybe the only team ever that I could see lining up against that Barca team. And when you've got when you go man to man and say you go Pe- uh, to against Villa, Maldini against Pedro, Costa curta against Messi, sure there'll be times when Messi will beat Costa curta but then he runs into Franco Baresi. Who's arguably the greatest central defender of all time? So I think I would go with that Milan team. But I suppose we, we do have different philosophical and fundamental views in the game. And this probably is where it comes out. You, your preferred style of play would be something more similar to what Pep does. Not, I, I wouldn't imagine exactly like that, but something along those lines. Whereas for me, I'd always look at that Milan team. And I. I think that Milan team plus the Capello team that came after it, that kind of era of of Milan, that shaped a lot of how I view football and and what I would want to see from my team. Um, But I do think this, if you could make this game happen, like this might be a thing where they play each other 10 times and both of them win five. Like there's that many permutations, there's that many incredible players between both sides
0: I would pay good, good money if someone in the future is able to come up with a scenario where you can pitch the very prime Rude Hullet against the very prime Puyol or Mascherano, whichever one you want to pick from that team. But either of those two going up, Puyol in particular because he's a bit better aerially and Hullet was obviously near unstoppable aerially, but Mm. physicality, speed, tenacity above all else, that would be one hell of a battle to watch.
2: Yeah, but it leaves PK trying to mark Van Basten, that's only end in one way. And they were just with the ball getting to him. That's a Marco Hattrick all day long.
0: <laughs> Basically, um, any shot
2: which is taken by Milan
0: is going in because you know it's Valdez, so it doesn't matter.
2: Yeah, that's true enough. Um, this Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk. If you ever hear this, take all that money you've got and make this happen. Fuck SpaceX. Don't care about Audible. Make this happen. This is what the people want. Right, Harry Welch. He has another one, and this is. This is random. So he says, bear with me as this is a bit random, but hey, you should all know me why now."
0: I think we need a different word for this, not just random.
2: Yeah, this is just just Welsh. It's what it is. It's just Welsh. So on the Now albums, etc., record companies would only let you use the big stars if you would put some of the shite artists on to let them get exposure. So based on that thinking, if football was like that and we had to do similar, how would that look? So Fulham, we wanted and signed Carvalho. But imagine Fulham said you can only have him if you also take player X. So for all the players we have signed and been linked to, who at their club is shite, but we have to take. even Even if it's to stick in the reserves and try and move for a profit in 12 to 18 months. This is kind of fun. So let's let's do this for the three we signed and let's say Bellingham and we'll, we'll pick one more. Um, unfortunately, Fulham let Dennis Adoy go uh, about six months ago because he would have been the correct answer here. Who would be the, the player that Fulham might turn around and say, look, we don't want this guy anymore. He's, we're paying him a bit of money and he's not very good. Please take him away. My, my feeling is it's Tim Ream, but who would you who would you plump for there? I
0: wonder whether it's going to be one of the ones that they sort of spent reasonably big on when they got promoted last time and just didn't really work. Someone like Anthony Knockout, someone like that, it just didn't happen for them at all. He didn't even really play that much in the championship last season as well. I think he was injured for a lot of it, wasn't he? Um, but they spent really big on him. And that would be a problem for us in terms of resale, because he's now going to be like 30 years old. Mm. So assuming we didn't have to just take whoever they wanted to offload, I guess you could make a case for someone like, I don't know, Josh Onema or something like that. He was quite good at the start of the Premier League season. I think he showed he could probably do bits if he was at the right club and given a chance. He's still only 25. He's English. Uh, again, only a bit part player last season, but... I saw a little bit of stuff in him. I, I feel like he could be, you know, a Ben Davies type of sign-in for us, who I still haven't seen play, by the way. Um So <laughs> someone like him, come in, do a bit of pre-season stuff, maybe get a loan to, you know, another another top championship club, and maybe then 12 months down the line you can sell him.
2: Yeah, I think, I think he's too good. I think he's too good. I think you've nailed it. I think it's Anthony Knockhart. And I think we stick him in the other twenty threes because he's only good in the championship, and he's often great in the championship. But mm. the Premier League, he is just—he's in that group with Mataya Vidra and Dwight Gale, and there's a bunch of others that are really good in the championship and just can't play in the Premier League. Um, what about Benfica then? Who's the who's the one that Benfica probably look at and think, I "Really wish we hadn't bought him, and wish we hadn't given him a contract." Can we find a sucker to take him far, far away? Nicholas Otamendi.
0: <laughs> are we going to age cap this so that we have no? People? No,
2: there's no age cap. There's no age <laughs> cap.
0: Okay. Um, I mean, if they were, if they wanted to be particularly mean to us, they could have insisted that we take Eriton. Obviously, um, that wouldn't go down well. Would it? Liverpool signed Everton in all the headlines. Uh, I think he's actually leaving this summer, anyway, isn't
2: he? Uh, I believe so. Yeah,
0: yeah. hasn't worked out too well because of how good Nunez was. I, I wouldn't mind that if they wanted to, you know, make me jump off a building. They could insist we take Harris Afarovich, but hopefully they wouldn't do that. Um, Adil Tarabt. plays a lot
2: for them, but we won't. Adil Tarabt can you imagine how quickly he would fall out with the entire with the entire dressing room? Imagine so on the first day <laughs> of preseason, season When The lads were doing the bleep test And Trap Rocks up and goes Oh no I don't do that type of thing And James Milner gets him in a headlock <laughs> And proceeds to do the entire Bleep test Dragging Trap around in a headlock And still and, wins And still probably fucking finishes first Or finishes last I suppose As it actually is Although I will say he didn't win it every year. It should be pointed out. Ginny Wijnaldum won it two of the years he was at the club. Um, Everton-Sorres has has actually left. He has gone to Flamengo for £13.5 million, pounds, which seems like quite a lot of money for a fairly average player. Seems
0: um, like we might be seeing one or two young uh, Flamengo players go to Benfica in the next couple of years
2: to me. Yeah, there's probably something there. I do like their signing of David Neres, though. Um, hmm. Yeah, I, I think I think Ottomendi is <laughs> given Given, he's just not very good but Adel trapped from a you know, the no dickhead policy point of view uh, would probably be the funniest outcome there. I'll be honest, I don't know a whole lot about who's at Aberdeen uh, so obviously we signed Calvin Ramsey from them um, I don't really know a whole lot about the rest of the team. I only watched them when they play Celtic and I watched a few games to see this kid play, see Ramsey play. But I'm at random. I'm just going to pick Johnny Hayes. um, Largely because he's 34 and he's on fairly big wages in comparison. Oh, he's not actually signed a smaller deal. Interesting. Interesting. I was under the impression he'd signed it a large deal. Um, he's still 34, but he is Irish, so, you know, it's always nice for us to have an Irish player in him. senior team. I'll say him.
0: Right, so, uh, the only two really that I know here, Christian Ramirez up front because he used to play MLS, obviously. Um, I assume that he's too good for them to want to let go. Plays all mm. the time for them, obviously. The other one that I know is Joe Lewis, uh, who's a former Norwich young goalkeeper, and then went on a, a meandering career to Peterborough and all the rest of them. And he he's is there. Apparently captain. ended up, is he? Uh, there you yeah. go. Well, he's apparently ended up there. So uh, I'm going to go for the fact that he's uh, 34 and still has another two years on his contract. I think so. They're going to want to offload him to bring through some you know, new blood and re
2: reevaluate their position of the average age of the squad. They give us that, Joe Lewis. That would work for us from a quota point of view as well. All the quota lads. He can be to us what Scott Carson is to Manchester City Mm. right let's do Dortmund because we know that Liverpool would like to sign Jude so let's let's look at Dortmund who is it that you think Dortmund would love to just get rid of who've they made a big mistake on there's a few but who've they made a big (laughs) mistake on and would like to rid themselves of
0: well I I think I know who your one would be I think that would be Mr. Matz-Hummels. I I think that you have long suggested that they shouldn't Mm. have signed him, shouldn't be playing him, should be getting rid of him, and probably don't want him to to be there for another, well, all eternity, to be perfectly honest. Uh, I reckon they might insist on one of their 72 uh, Swiss goalkeepers, because they've got just too many of them on the books, to be perfectly honest. Shouldn't be allowed. Uh, Failing that... Maybe we're looking at one of those sort of forwards that they signed that they hope would be like, you know, a, um, a Royce and a Sanjo and all the rest of them and just didn't really work out. So maybe someone like Tigers or Marius Wolf, someone like that, who's just been there for you know, 17 years and have never quite managed to actually do too much. Um, been out on loan a couple of times. Rainier was only there on loan. Otherwise, I would have
2: included him in that as well. Yeah, yeah. he. he I think they were quite happy to see see him leave and head back to Real Madrid. It'll be re- I'm actually really interested to see what happens with him next. Because I do think there's a, a really, really talented player there. But going to Dortmund was just a terrible move for him. And uh, I think if if Real loan him to, you know, like a lower level uh, La Liga team who will play him regularly, um, I actually think he could be a very good player. Um, yeah, you're right. Mats Hummels would absolutely be the one. I mean, he is now 33. He'll be 34 in, in December. He, he has not been good since returning. They spent a lot of money on him and sold a better defender at that point for less in Diallo to PSG. Um, it was just a silly move. And um, I think they have regretted it since. So yeah, he would be the one for me. Um The last one then, let's do Inter Milan because Neil Jones mentioned in his article the other day that Inter Milan midfielder Nicolo Barella is somebody that Jurgen Klopp really likes. Who at Inter, and again, I think there might be a couple, would you be of the belief that they'd be very happy to just be rid of, whether it's because they're not very good or there's a player there on big wages that they would like to just remove from their wage bill? Yeah, I think that's quite. And why is it a Chilean player?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, he's one one of several, I would imagine, that they'd be quite keen to offload. Um, I mean, Alexis has just basically hung up his boots from the moment he left Arsenal. Let's be perfectly honest. That's just not enough has happened there at all. But they have quite a few people like Gagliardini, who's in and out of the team. Um, Even like Vidal, who they gave, I think he's got a three year contract. He's now. Um, 35 or something like that. I wouldn't be surprised if they were quite keen to offload him. And then you got all the aged defenders who Antonio Conte like to collect, but very few other managers do. So Mm. I think Damian is still there. Um, Take your pick, let's be honest. Damrosio, I don't really think I've ever seen him have a a tremendous game. Maybe Damian, maybe they just want to offload Damian unless there's anyone with a longer contract than him.
2: Yeah, that's a good shout. Well, see, what, what Inter really should do here is they should look at Sanchez and look at Vidal and really just lean into that. Go and get yourself Claudio Bravo. Bring him in. Nice, young, backup goalkeeper, 39 years of age. Gary Medel still knocking around. But, bring yes, him put in. Put the
0: team back together. Put him back <laughs> Mar- together. Mar- 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 together. Mar- see what you know. Mark Gonzalez is doing these
2: days. Yes, bring them all in. Get get that era of... Uh, what's Eduardo Vargas at? He's playing for... Atletico Monero, he'd be he'd be loving life in Milan. Uh, Charles Zaringis, there's no way Leverkusen would stand in his way of living out the dream. Get them all back together. Get that whole era of Chilean players in as one. Bin off the manager as well. Get rid of him. Get rid of him. <laughs> Get ourselves, a little bit of George Sampaoli. Get him in. He'll do the job. Be absolutely outstanding. Um, Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's probably Darmian, Vidal, or Alexis. I'm sure they'd be very happy to to remove any of them from their squad because that's a lot of wages been taken up by three players who are all the wrong side of thirty. Now Darmian, look, he's fairly um, inoffensive. Yeah, he's inoffensive. that's a good word from. He's inoffensive, but like you don't want to be paying him a lot of money for the next couple of years, so get get rid of one of them. Right, moving on. Uh, Amin P asks, with Fiorentina not picking up the option to buy Lucas Torreira, and Arsenal not wanting him back, would he be a good fit as a backup midfielder? Now, I like him, I think, more than you do, and I wouldn't mind him as a backup left-sided eight. I think he's a little bit too small to play as a six in the Premier League, but I do like him as a player, and I think hes he brings a lot of drive, and he's a good passer, he's feisty, and he wins the ball quite a bit. And I think he'd suit playing under Klopp. I think Klopp would fall in love with him fairly quickly. It's just a matter of whether you think he's actually good enough as a player. i take him as a backup eight, as a backup to Thiago in that left-sided role. And that way you just let Nabi be the right-sided starting eight. And then you don't have to worry, well, if Thiago's not there, we've got to play Nabi. Just get Torreira, play him there. I'd be happy enough with Torreira.
0: I do like Torreira, but I I, I wouldn't take him for Liverpool, to be per- perfectly honest. Uh, I don't quite think there's enough technical ability for what I'd like CR8s to do. Um, and I think you'd notice a huge drop-off if it was him in for Thiago, to be perfectly honest. Good ball <laughs> winner. And if we played a double pivot all the time, then I'd be much more inclined to consider him but I do like him better in a, a two-man midfield, to be honest. I think Arsenal have missed out on using him compared to some of the midfield crap that they have over the last two years. Just, just
2: name Granite Jacket, Kyle. Don't skirt around <laughs> the issue. Name Granit Jacket.
0: Sorry, I was going to cover him when I said some of the left-back stroke central midfield crap that they've used over <laughs> the last, last couple of years. But anyway, I think that they've um, erred on two or three players, actually, that they've sent out on loan and probably have then tried to replace even though they already had someone as good or maybe even better than they did have. Obviously Saliba is another one there's a couple of other examples but I wouldn't take him for Liverpool and I hope that he does go somewhere where he can start every single week because he should have been you know, a, a real strong regular performer and he mm. hasn't really been over the last couple of years so fingers crossed he can get back to that level
2: I loved him at Sampdoria absolutely loved him at Sampdoria what I want him to do is I want him to grow a beard and just become a gnarly bastard. He's only 26. So he's a bit young for the gnarly bastard phase. But just grow a beard and just go around and start kicking people. You're 5'5". Five, five, you'll get away with it. Uh, I take him, Carl Wooden. There we go. Um, JC Tyrone. Hypothetically speaking, which strike partnership would you choose? Darwin Nunes and Mosala or Torres and Suarez? I, I think it's Torres and Suarez largely because we haven't seen the other two play together. But I think Suarez, at his best, was better than Mo. And obviously, we haven't seen Darwin perform at the level of Torres yet. Now, whether that blend would be as good as what I think the blend of Darwin and Mo would be, which I think would be absolutely perfect, I don't know. But in terms of the players, I'm, I'm taking Torres and Suarez. By a million miles for me, to be perfectly honest. Okay. Um
0: <laughs> they were two of my favorite forwards of all time for Liverpool. So, you know, I think it was quite a big thing. Was it one of the was it a charity game? They played with each other for a few minutes, one of them came on as sub, and I think it was a really big uh reception that they got at Anfield as well for a little bit. I, I would have loved to have watched those two play together, to be honest. So I would definitely take them. Suarez probably used a bit more as the the channel runner and the the hounder of defences and the terroriser of all the wild because Torres would just be plundering goal after goal after goal after goal after goal when you've got defenders having to watch everything that Suarez does on the ball. Um, I think that that Mo and and Darwin could potentially be really interested now depending on how we use the two of them because obviously it's a different, different type of football now and a different way that we use spaces in the attack now. But just for general fun, yeah, definitely Suarez and Torres.
2: Right, next one. Harry Welch is back in again. Tony yaboa how good was he? How many great goals did he score? If he was around now, what's the best club he could play for? I mean, the two goals he's remembered for are obviously the, the goal against us, the volley against us, which is just still one of the most outrageous things I've ever seen. And then a few weeks later, he scored possibly an even better one against Wimbledon. Was it Wimbledon? I
0: think it yeah, was, it was Wimbledon. I think that was a better one by distance.
2: Yeah, because um, there was a bit more. Like it wasn't just a, a hit; it was yeah. setting and like getting himself into the position. Yeah. Um, how good was he? I mean, <sighs> hard to call that. It is hard to call because he he didn't score those type of goals all the time, and he would go through spells where he wouldn't offer a whole lot of much. He, wasn't particularly good off the ball or anything like that. But it, a lot of it also depends on, you know, what club would he play for? What would they ask him to do? Would he be playing in a two? Would he be playing on his own? Would he be playing in the middle of a three? Like back then it was 4-4-2. Four, four, he was stuck up front. I think with Brian Dean, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and I don't think he got the best of him. I think he was obviously super talented. But how good was he? I, I don't know. I don't really remember is the is the, the truthful answer of it. Let me have a quick look. You you give me your thoughts on him.
0: So he was um, Bundesliga top scorer twice in a row. Now, I only know this because I had to do a, a feature on him a little while back. I didn't really get to see Yeboah. You know, it wasn't the time. It was 96, something like that. It wasn't really the time when every single Premier League game was on or anything like that. Mm-hmm. So I can't tell you absolutely how good he was and what every single aspect of the game that he could do and all the rest of it. But he played for second-tier teams and was really good. You know, it was Eintracht, Frankfurt and Hamburg either side of his Leeds moves. Um, So it it wasn't like he was a Milan-Man United into sort of level forward. It was that next tier down and he was very good with them and he had a really good strike rate at international level as well. So to be top scorer in Germany a couple of times is very, very good. So I think that maybe if you're looking at a very regular goal scorer who plays in a two and is good enough to be like in a a challenging side, but not quite in the Champions League best teams, then I guess in the modern day, you're probably looking at around Arsenal-Spurs sort of level.
2: Yeah. maybe Arsenal-Spurs, West Ham, that sort of collective. You could see him doing well under Moyes, the the, the service that he'd get. So yeah, I mean, you look at his run from 91-92 He's seventeen in thirty-eight. That's his second season at Eintracht. Then he's thirty and thirty-seven, which is a great return, obviously. Twenty and twenty-seven. In ninety-four-95, that's the season he moves to Leeds. He gets eleven and twenty-one for Eintracht in the first half, and thirteen and twenty for Leeds in the second half. So 24 goals in 41 games. So it's a really strong season. It's his only full season in the Premier League. He's uh he gets nineteen in thirty-nine across all competitions, twelve in twenty-two in the league. He gets injured that year. He only plays seven games the following season, doesn't score, goes to Hamburg, struggles the first season, three goals in twenty three, but then he's sixteen and thirty seven and twelve and thirty one. So from his Sarba Saarbrucken days, which admittedly is the second Bundesliga. Um, he's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, eleven of 13 years scoring double figures. It's not bad, and like you said, he's not playing for the creme de la creme, he's mm. playing for you know mid level, he's playing for, I suppose, the equivalent of. What would it be? Aston
0: Villa now or yeah, it was sort of UEFA Cup sort of teams, wasn't it? Basically. Yeah. Like, well, UEFA Leeds... Cup or going for a domestic cup, so around the I think Arsenal's a fairly good comparison, you know. It's the teams who were trying to break in at that time. Hamburg were, you know, trying to push into the, the Yeah, and Leeds con, did uh, finish fifth the time. To be fair. Leeds were the same, yeah. The the time when he signed for Leeds, I remember the, the, the thing at the time was it was meant to be him and um Phil Masinger, were gonna be the you know yes, the, right. the forward line. And I think it was Brian Dean basically kept them out. And then I think that was about the time they signed Ian Rush as well, which obviously didn't go tremendously well. But Masinga didn't really live up to expectations. And Yobawa was brilliant for like a year and a half or whatever and then sort of fell off the radar a bit.
2: Not a bad Leeds team. So you have, would have had John in goal. He would, would have been well past his best by then, but he was a solid keeper. Gary Kelly right back. Tony DiRigo would have been left back. Um. Radaby. They would have had David Wetherall and Lucas Radaby at centre back, which is quite good. McAllister in centre midfield. Gary Speed was wide left.
0: Hemberton, I guess, would have been in midfield. Maybe he went to the midfield. Carlton Farmer? Would he have
2: been playing at that point? Maybe.
0: Or Thomas Brolin?
2: Thomas Brolin would have come in. I think he came in the next season, didn't he? Is, I'm just looking at 94, 95 when he, when he joined. And like you said, it was it was to be Masinga and Yeboah, but Masinga just didn't get the opportunities. But again, he was similar to Dean in that he was a big, tall striker and they wanted Yeboah to play off that big target man. And I do wonder if now in the modern game where you don't really do that little and large thing and the the inventiveness of players is of a higher level, And it's not just about cross and long balls into the box. I do think he'd be a lot more effective now in terms of how teams would use him. Um, Look, the bottom line is he did score. Yeah, so look, apparently the starting 11 had Nigel Worthington playing in midfield, Carlton Palmer, McAllister and Speed. That was the midfield. Uh, Pemberton was playing centre-back until Lucas Radaby took his spot. And Rod Wallace was the kind of third striker with Dean and then Yeboah. So, um, and poor old Phil was on the end of the bench. Also in that team, David White, who was a very, very good player, came through the City Academy, Leeds bought him. It didn't really work. He went on to Sheffield Wednesday and obviously more recently became uh, kind of known to the younger generation because he was one of the people that spoke out against Barry Bunnell. Um, right, let's move on. Ryu asks, most hyped young footballers that failed to live up to expectations, Liverpool and worldwide? Let's do Liverpool first. Um, what Liverpool youngsters were we very excited for that just clearly weren't good enough at the top level? So
0: I'll give you the one that I had. The one that was seemingly on all the, well, it wasn't even social media at the time. It was the, the Liverpool forums and stuff that everyone was excited about. And then the couple that all the coaches spoke about and injuries basically affected progress in the end. Uh, mine was Adam Hamill. I thought he was a sensational player. I saw him a few times live for the uh, 18s and 21s when he was coming through and nobody could get near him. Technical level was like off the charts. He would score goals from all over the place. But obviously, as it turned out, as he, as he got older, maybe the attitude wasn't quite up to scratch. A um, couple of loans that didn't work out. He did really well. Was it Dunfermline or someone like that, north of the border? He was really good at, it, and I thought when he then came back, maybe he would go on and make his way into the squad, but didn't really happen. Um, there was Paul Anderson in the Rafa Benitez era, who was, again, noted for scoring quite a lot of goals in the FA Cup youth runs that we had at the time. and was a spectacular sort of winger, but I don't think he ever made an appearance for us. And then a couple from a bit further back uh, down the line, mid nineties, I guess it would have been, and, and a little bit later on, Jamie Cassidy was one who was ridiculously highly rated. He was like allowed to go along with the England squads for you know a couple of friendlies, not not in the squad, but just to be around it and see how it was all going and that. Um, but he had a, a, an injury which kind of took all his pace away, and eventually never really progressed past the lower leagues and a young midfielder called Mannix as well, Danny Mannix, David Mannix, Danny or David Mannix, I can't remember which one, who was again, really really talented and really good passer of the ball and everything, but just never really progressed into first team level in the end.
2: Um, Adam Hamill is a very good call, and look, the the guy went on and had a respectable career, you know, once (laughs) he left us, he went to Barnsley, then Wolves, then Middlesbrough, Huddersfield, He, he was a journeyman, but he He played for a long time. He's literally just left uh, Derry a year ago, Derry City. And if I'm not mistaken, he is the one who alerted Liverpool to Trent Conay-Doherty, the youngster we've just signed from Derry. Uh, I believe that's the case. That's what I've been informed. But um, Adam Hamill went on and had, you know, a long journeyman career. So you know, for a lot of people, they don't even get that. Um Guy says Danny Pacheco, and I think that's a, a decent call. I think there was a lot of excitement around him when he was young. The one for me is Adam Morgan, because he scored at such an incredible rate in the academy that it looked like he might have that sort of you know you get those players that pop up every so often and there's there's not a, a high level of technical ability but they just know how to score goals. They don't do anything else really but they score goals. I would have said him. Um and he's obviously had a non-league career but it, it's it's very disappointing considering what he was touted to be as a youngster. It's, it's crazy to think it's 8 years since he left Liverpool. In that time, he has played for one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, fifteen 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 15 different clubs in eight years. Um, and obviously Adam has struggled a bit with his mental health and, and different things. But look, I'm just glad he's still playing football and, and doing what he enjoys. It's just a shame he didn't get the career that a lot of us would have hoped for for him. Um, I do like that Danny Pacheco shout. We'll take our next question from Guy. Was Hazard that good? Is he or was he as good as Mane and especially Salah? Um,
0: all right. First of all, I'm coming back to this players who didn't live up to the hype because I, I want to go through a few outside of Liverpool ones, right?
2: Okay, go, go with that let's do
0: this. Oh, Okay, fine. Um, the biggest one of all is Freddy Adu, because yes. we're talking about hype here, right? So Freddy Adu is the archetypal hyped-up player who ultimately didn't. So we'll go with him um, as the, the the king of what can be done by people talking and people playing. But there are loads and loads of others for all kinds of reasons. Valery Bozhinov was one of the biggest, brightest
2: talents in, in Italy when he was coming through. Did he go to he City? Really do it. it just all went to yeah. shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was yeah. one of the yeah. early City signings when they got all the money. Yeah. yeah. Um
0: Royston Drenta is a good example, and Andy van der Meda as well, as as Dutch ones who uh thought of being you know the next big, 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 big things. And I think one of them ended up as a, a musician by like 27, 28, something like that. I think Drenta did. Um, and also we got Michael Johnson at Man City, obviously. He was really good when he was coming through but didn't really do deal too well with the off-pitch stuff and when he didn't start being in the Man City team. Uh, along the same lines as Danny Pacheco, his youth team partner up front for Barca was Bojan Kerkic, who would probably remember from Stoke and that, but when he came through at Barca, he was unbelievably good at like 17. And I think he scored in all six competitions in that really, really good campaign mm. that they had, where they won absolutely everything. But then he went on loan to roma and it never really got any better than that to be honest it was it was kind of downhill from there all the way um and then one of my favorite Barca players when he was when he signed uh, and he was really young when he joined and he was so so good was Javier Saviola. Yes. he just never never quite did it he never really seemed to nail down a first team spot once right card came in uh, and then there were loans and transfers and he went back to river in the end and he was good but he was not as good as he could have been. And that's a that's a bit of a shame because I thought he was like properly world class.
2: I would say Saviola's a great show. And I also think, although this player is held on a pedestal, I think Pablo Aymar's career. I think if you play his career out ten times, what we got was the worst version of what his career could have been. Him and, him and Saviola together, they should have been. Argentina, raising Argentina to a different level for 10, 12 years. And although they both played for the Argies a lot, uh, neither of them had the international career or the club career that they deserved for their talent. Um, Another Barcelona one, I would say Giovanni dos Santos. Really talented player, but couldn't translate it onto the pitch for whatever reason. It did go on and do well obviously for LA Galaxy and whatever else, but for a player that has 107 Mexican caps, he had a fairly forgettable career overall. Um, I would say him. Another Mexican would be Diego Reyes, uh, (laughs) who I I absolutely (laughs) loved. Uh, Thought he had enormous potential as a holding midfielder and a slew of idiot managers insist that he was a centre-back and he was never good enough at centre-back and, again, didn't have the career that he should have had. Um, A Liverpool one, Thiago Alori, huge talent, like unbelievable talent. Injuries, whether the attitude was there or not, I don't know, but this guy once put Lionel Messi in his pocket for 90 minutes and danced the jig on Barcelona. So. Uh, I'd throw him in there. Um Michael Johnson's a great shout. A great shout. He might be he might be one of the the most the, the biggest lost talents that England have had in the last 15 years. He did have that horrible hip injury and that kind of is, is when the spiral started. I think Jack Wiltshire I mean m- remember that Champions League game when he was 18 mm-hmm. against Barça and he absolutely ran the show? and he was never ever better than he was that night at 18 that was the pinnacle of his career he should have been the next great english player and he just wasn't um would you say the same about owen michael owen
0: yeah i'm not yeah. sure that's i'm not sure that's quite the same though is it is it, it's is not it the it same because
2: not- he did he did reach the like he did hit some incredible highs and he was european footballer of the year but For what he promised to be, like, yeah, I've said this recently. Owen, when Owen came through, what we thought Owen was going to be is similar enough to the hype that Mbappe got when Mbappe came through. Yeah, but Owen's hamstring exploded and the pace went. And he, not that it went, he was afraid to use it because he's afraid to get. He said he's spoken about this himself, he was afraid to, to spin. And go behind and really turn on the burners, because he was so worried about his hamstring, and he had to alter his game and rather than becoming an all time great, which I think there's no doubt he would have been, he just became a very good player um but like he should have he should have smashed the England career goal scoring record. he had forty like by i think twenty seven and he should have just gone on and obliterated that record. And even then, he'd slowed down the last couple of years. By 2005, when he was 26, he had 35 goals for England. And I remember seeing Gary Lineker doing it, either doing an interview or doing a match today or something, talking about how you know he didn't break Bobby Charlton's record because he missed the penalty, but Michael Owen was definitely going to break the record. And instead, Owen got to 40, and that was it. His England career was over at the age of twenty nine, and in fairness, his club career basically ended at thirty when he joined United to be a squad player. And a couple of years there, a bit of a, a bit of a season at Stoke. Such a shame. Michael Owen should have been. And you know what? If we're going to go there, Robbie Fowler. Robbie Fowler. The injuries stopped him becoming what he was, and obviously we still all adore him, and he was a great player. But he wasn't nearly as great as he could have been if it hadn't been for the injuries. And and maybe if he'd been a little bit more I don't want to say he wasn't committed, but you, do you know what I mean? If, if his attitude was often questioned by Julio and Phil Thompson that he was too interested in having a laugh and just being sort of, you know, Robbie Fowler, everybody's best friend, rather than Robbie Fowler the best player in the league. I think Fowler and Owen, I think both fell short. Of where they should have gotten to in their careers. Two more to finish up with uh, very, very different reasons why
0: they were hyped and very different reasons why they didn't in the end. Diesler and Danielson.
2: Yeah, so Sebastian Diesler, he, for me, maybe the most technically gifted German player there's ever been. Like, he was De Bruyne of that era, that level of ability to deliver the ball wherever it was he wanted. Could play wide, could play central, could play as a 10, could go box to box. It was a big physical presence. Sensational player. I would throw in, while we're talking about Germans, Julian Draxler. I was at the game where he scored his first goal for Schalke, where he beat three people in a small space and leathered the ball into the top corner from 20-odd yards. And I thought I was after seeing Stephen Gerrard just like restart his career. Um and the way he, he could dominate a game from the middle of the park. And then he had some injuries, he fell out with people at Schalke, he got some bad advice, he went to Wolfsburg, it didn't work there. He ends up at PSG because he took the money and the lifestyle, and he he, like many others, just never came close to maximizing his talent. Um and the Nielsen is a funny one because obviously Real Betis signed him for a world record fee when he wasn't he wasn't really known to the common fan. Like the casual fan had no idea who this fellow was. All of a sudden there was news that Real Betis had broken the world transfer record to sign a winger. And It just, it didn't, it didn't become what it should have become. I mean, all the talent could embarrass defenders left and right. But it's a very disappointing career overall for like, it's, it's not a bad career. You know, he played for Betis for seven years. Um, He played for Bordeaux for for a year and was good there. He went back to Palmeiras and was good there. But for what he should have been, I think that's a, a disappointing career And another one I'll throw in to you, and you might remember this guy. Um, This guy was a central defender at Real Betis, who, athletic Bilbao, broke broke the transfer record for a Spanish player at the time, Roberto Rios. Do you remember him? Certainly do. He looked like an absolute monster. At Betis and went to Bilbao and it it just didn't work at all for him.
0: No, and it'd even be a shame, obviously, because one the the money they spent on them and two because there's you know, kind of limited options for them to choose from and they did think that he was someone who could push them towards being title challengers at the time. Basically, you know, they had a, a really good squad around the time. I think Guerrero was still there and Etibedi and the rest of them. So it was meant to be one of the final pieces of the jigsaw for them to, to finally go on and challenge as a, a regular title uh, contender. And like you say, it didn't really work.
2: No, Julian Guerrero was, uh, was one of my favourite players at the time. I'm glad you mentioned him. Um, right. Eden Hazard. How good was he? Was he that good? Was he Mane good? Was he Salah wow. good? Right. I'm not going to put him in, in the category of Mane good for starters
0: based on one thing, consistency. And if you want to be the best players in the world, in my opinion, you have to be that consistently among the greatest players. Now, we all know that Mane from one season to the next can be like three months really good and three months really quiet and three months really good again. We've seen it like several years in a row and that is fairly normal, I would say, at the very top end of the game. Most players do not have an entire season where they are unstoppably good, other than, you know, peak Ronaldo, most of Messi's career, that kind of thing. You are generally, for the player of the league, for the golden boot contenders, for people in the running for the Ballon d'Or, you get spells of three or four months when they are legit number one in their position. And then maybe three or four months when they play, okay, fine, still in the team, still doing well, still winning, but not necessarily world beating. Like Salah's season last year was a pretty good example of that. Like he was untouchable for four months, something like that. And then he was really quite poor, to be perfectly honest, probably lower than you would normally expect uh, players of that caliber to go down to for another two or three months. And then he was fine for you know two months, nowhere near the level that he was, but not not dreadful, or wouldn't be, you know, out the side or anything like that. So Hazard had himself a couple of seasons where he was not that good, not that effective, not contributing to victories. I think as a technical player, at his best and when he was used in the best possible way, which I think for a couple of years was uh, in off the flank, and for one season in particular was when he was used centrally, was really really good, like unstoppably good. But I wouldn't put him as as good as Sadio Mane, for example, because he had those long down periods. And you can say it's due to the manager or the team or the fact that it was chop and change in the way that they played in the formation and all the rest of it. But Mane has had that as well. He's been played all over the pitch. So I would put Mane above him based on consistency, but on a technical one-on-one level match winner when they're in peak form, Hazard's pretty tough to beat.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't think there's any question that of the three, mane salah hazard hazard's the most talented of the three like he's got the highest technical level by quite a considerable margin in my view but the question isn't isn't who's the most talented it's who's the best player in the same way that like if you look at the last 15 years outside of messi neymar is probably the most talented player the game has seen But nobody would put Neymar or nobody with a brain in the head would say that Neymar was a better player than Cristiano or a better player than Suarez or a better player than Iniesta or a, a bunch of others that you could go through because talent doesn't equate to being good. It gives you the opportunity to be good, but it doesn't guarantee it. Paul Pogba is another one. Paul Pogba is easily one of the two or three most talented players the Premier League has had over the last seven years. But he's in no way, shape or form been one of the best players the Premier League has had in that time. He hasn't even been in one of, in the 50 best players the Premier League has had in that time. Now Hazard was better than Pogba, but like you said, it was like one season of greatness, one season of nothing. One season of greatness, one season of nothing. And yeah, sure you can say, well, you know, a lot chopped and changed at Chelsea, a lot of different managers. But it's not like they ever had scrubs managing the team. I mean, he got, they, they had they had Mourinho, uh, and they had Conte, like and Sari. He he had really, really good managers there, who, especially Conte really did give him the keys to the team, allowed him to play outside of the tactical structure of an Antonio Conte team, and did get results from him, but then he just would disappear the next season. And whenever there was a little bit of negativity around Chelsea, or whenever things got tough, Eden Hazard just disappeared. A gloriously talented player. Like, top five most talented players from the last 15 years. Right up there with, not quite as talented as Neymar, but sort of the next next one behind him. But like with Neymar, a disappointing career. I'm sure he's going to be happy with his career. He got to Real Madrid. He's just won a Champions League. He's won a couple of league titles. But, if, I mean, you should have been a Ballon d'Or winner. You should have been a guy we looked at and said, you're the best player in the world even if it was just fleeting. But at no, there's no six-month spell you can look at and say Hazard was the best player in the world in that six-month period because, in part, he always had others like Messi and Cristiano and Suarez and whatever else. But you can look at Salah and say from August to January of the 21-22 season, Mo Salah was the best player in the world. And that was with Lewandowski playing out of his mind, with Benzema playing out of his mind, with Mbappe playing at an obscene level. Salah was the best player in the world. Eden Hazard can't look, can't point to any period and say, that's my half season where I was the best player in the world. He just can't. So no, he definitely wasn't as good as Salah. And Mane has consistency on him, without doubt. Even though Mane himself could be a little bit inconsistent, he would never well, one season aside when he had COVID, he he wouldn't just disappear the way Hazard did. And the one thing you'd always get from Mane and Salah is even when they're not playing well, they're still working like absolute dogs. Hazard couldn't be arsed.
0: And I think even the the season where Mane was COVID ill and not really very good, he still got numbers. There was a season where, Hazard went all the, almost all the way through without scoring a single goal. Yeah. There was still a yeah. contribution from that.
2: I think, didn't Eden Hazard go 365 days without a goal at one point? Like, that's, that's never happening to Sadio or to Mo, ever. Just wouldn't happen. Um, right, next one is from Rick M. If you all became professional darts players, and Guy, I'm including you in this, so get your thinking cap on. What would be your nicknames and your walkout music? So, Carol, do you want to go first or do you want to have a think about this one?
0: I'm going to go last because I'm going to put myself into an internet nickname maker. So give us a minute.
2: Right. Guy, do you want to go first or do you want to go second? So he's Dazzler Guy Dazzler Drinkle and he's going to put a little bit of S Club 7. Okay, <laughs> I like the nickname. Question the music choice. So, for me, growing up, my favorite comic book was Hellboy. So, I'm David Hellboy Hendrick. I've also got a tattoo that says Hellboy. Uh, so, and my music would be Hell's Bells by ACDC. Uh, I think that would be the way I would go, or For Whom the Bell Tolls by Metallica is another. I think really good one that fits into uh, into walkout music, so that's what I will go with. Uh, and Guy is changing his music choice. He's going to take Robbie Williams. Uh, "Let Me Entertain You" I think would be quite a good a good song for Guy Dazzler Drinkle. Um, so yeah, we'll we'll take those two. And uh, Mister Matchett, if you've got your nickname.
0: Yeah, I'm um, I'm not entirely sure how it's managed to come up with this, but apparently I am sparkly boy.
2: (laughs) Carol, sparkly boy matches. Mm. Beautiful.
0: Um, I think I've got to come up with music, which is obviously going to be in in keeping with the nickname, haven't I? So, um, or we could do the complete opposite. Well, sparkly think, boy coming out. I think Sparkly boy death.
2: has to come out to like Wham or something.
0: Well, I was thinking
2: Megadeth, you know. <laughs> we'll take we'll take a bit, bit of
0: Slipknot, Slipknot for Sparkly boy.
2: <laughs> right, there is a question here from AT7 that we're going to save and do it as a podcast. So it's got an idea for, you for a future pod. So do you remember when Don ballon used to do its annual? One hundred of top young talents, and then in bed with Maradona took over in bed with Maradona rest in peace what a website um how yeah. about doing a top fifty or top twenty young talents under twenty one in world football would love to hear some new names so I think top twenty top twenty five maybe if we do a top if we both do our own top twenty fives and um we can do that in a few weeks, maybe do that as as a podcast and I think that would be quite good actually. And then we'll pr- probably cross over on a few, but maybe between us we come up with 30, 35 names. Uh, I think that could be quite fun to do. Uh so last one then, this is for, from Hardy Bambra. Unconventional unconventional opinion. Alex Ferguson, who was lauded for many things, one of them being that he was great at developing young players into elite players. But when you look at the players he brought through, you could only call the class of 92 and Ronaldo elite as he didn't develop any other elite players. Now, I'm not the biggest Wayne Rooney fan, but I do think you have to include him in that elite player group. So we'd throw him in as well. So you've got, of that class of 92, the only ones that were like, Neville wasn't an elite player. Neither Neville was. Neither was Nicky, but... But Beckham was, Scholes was, and Giggs was, as were Rooney and Ronaldo. So that's five. He does have a point here, Carl. From 26 years in charge, or 27 years in charge, it's not a great hit rate, to be
0: fair. I would slightly disagree, to be honest. Um, I don't think that, for starters... (sighs) However, long you're at a club, um, it's not that likely that you get half a dozen genuinely world class players come through as locals. And this is the period where, you know, up until the Ronaldo, it wasn't really young players coming through from afar. Most of his managerial career was uh, in terms of the young players at the club, players who were local, players who were at the academy and coming through, that kind of thing. So you're, you're a little bit restricted by, you know, numbers and normal how good humans are in one specific part of the world because move anywhere else, you know? Um, I would also say that maybe in terms of how good you are at developing players, I would make the mark of it more who did he develop who was kind of rubbish or not that good and actually played a decent part for a first team who was winning things for Man United, much more than who reached elite level status. So
2: like the, the John O'Shea's and people you know, like that. Brown, um i will not have any i will have no disrespect of wes brown on this podcast that poor man is the world's only beige colored footballer and i will not have disrespect of him
0: Uh, no disrespect here i think he was a really good player i'm saying look at where where they went elsewhere afterwards people like um oh god god there was loads of them i can't even think of now ben thornley he was one um Richie Wellens, Michael Twist, all these players who did Luke nothing after leaving for United. Yeah. All these players who did nothing after leaving United were coached to be good enough to play a part, mm. to play a role for Man United in a period where they were the most dominant side in the world. Uh, even people who like, didn't really do anything in their career, or some of them who were pretty good in their career in terms of professional Premier League footballers, Darren Gibson, Johnny Evans has had a ridiculously good career. You would never call him elite. But that guy came through at Man United at a time when they were winning everything, and was coached to be good enough to be an international and a captain and a top-flight player for years and years and years. You know, I think that that is much more relevant to how good uh, a manager is at trusting, coaching, and bringing through younger players. Plus, we should also rem- we should also remember Ferguson wasn't necessarily the biggest. Coach of them, he was the manager of them, True. and he relied a whole lot on his coaching staff, his assistant, which was a revolving door for years. Um, to to yeah, Ferguson play was, a big role was like,
2: like one of the first kind of CEOs of football, yeah. where he just oversaw everything, and he, he his his great strength was finding the right staff and putting the right staff in place, and and knowing when things were going stale with that staff and not being too sentimentally attached to them. One of Ferguson's great strengths in all regards was not being sentimentally attached to players or coaches who he viewed as no longer having the same level of impact, whether that was on the pitch or off the pitch. So Gary Neville has spoken about how when he came to retire and he went to Ferguson, Ferguson wanted him to stick around because he knew he could have an impact off the pitch. Whereas he just wouldn't play him anymore. He told him outright, I'm not gonna play you anymore, but if you'll stick around, you'll basically be a coach. Um, he wouldn't weaken the team, but he'd make sure that the the club itself stayed strong. You know, he cut ties with Mark Hughes, he cut ties with Roy Keane when he thought he was too much trouble for what he was actually producing on the pitch cut ties with Paul Ince when he decided he wasn't worth the hassle anymore. He would just move on from players and he'd be ruthless about it. And he's made a couple of mistakes, Yapstam being the most notable one. I, I think you've made a great point. Ferguson. Ferguson might not have developed a whole ton of elite players, like truly world-class players, five of them, that I would point to. But then you look at Roy Keane, who was a young midfielder when he joined the club and became one of the best midfielders of all time. So I think he goes into that group as well, actually. so That's six. And there's probably others we could look at. But his great strength was developing players into just good players, into functional players. And a lot of that comes down to, and I've spoken to this before, how simple the football United played was, how simple his system was. He didn't He didn't make things too complicated. Like, you often watch, you know, Pep talking to players or Arteta giving instruction and the players looking at them with this glazed look and you're like, you're saying all these words and he doesn't know what you want him to do because you're making things too complicated for him. With Ferguson, that was never an issue. Every single player who went on the pitch for Manchester United knew exactly what their role was and exactly what was expected of them. And he never asked players to do anything that they weren't capable of doing. And that was one of his great strengths. He knew the weaknesses of his players and he eliminated them and he played to their strengths. I I think the more I look into Ferguson, and obviously I, you know, lived through most of his career at United or all of his career at United lived through, but I'm I'm conscious of most of his career at United. But the more I sort of read up on him and speak to people who followed them a lot more closely than I did. So United fans or whatever, or, or had any kind of dealings with him, the more I start to appreciate just the way he stripped away all the bullshit and the way he stripped away all the noise And all these footballers had to do was focus on the game. All they had to do was make sure they were prepared and he would take care of the rest for them. And I love the way, remember when Beckham got sent off in the World Cup and Ferguson just put himself in front of Beckham between Beckham and the media. Ferguson stood out in front and said, no, you're not going to ask him questions about what happened in the World Cup. You're not going to do any of that. You can ask him about Manchester United and he will talk about Manchester United because he's a Manchester United player and that's all that matters now. And there's a single-mindedness to that and obviously Welsh fans won't be too happy about it, but the way he just wouldn't let Ryan Giggs play in friendlies, things like that, because he knew that it would heighten the risk of injury. You can play in the important games, you're not playing in, in shitty friendlies. The same with Roy Keane in Ireland. He held them back when he needed to hold them back for their own good. Uh, There's there's maybe some things you can pick at him over, but yeah, I think you're right. I think his development of players overall absolutely a strength. Again, didn't have the elite, but it's not like he wanted a whole bunch of elite world-class players anyway. Like even look at the players he signed. He rarely went out and signed the ready-made superstar. There's a few, Tevez, Berbatov, Veron who didn't work, Van Nistelrooy, Stam. But he always wanted certain characteristics from a player who could just fit into a system and who would play within what he wanted. And I do think that's a great strength.
0: Yeah, I mean, he, he was a very, very much a manager in terms of the all-round approach of the of the team, obviously a different era in terms of being involved in the transfers and all the rest of it, but kind of overlaps and similarities with someone like Jürgen Klopp now in that he delegates a lot of responsibility on the training ground and everywhere else to people who have big strengths in that area. And he's a, a real man-manager. Do it in very different ways, but man-management first, and obviously tactical and all the rest of it comes afterwards to an extent. And they win a load of stuff.
2: Yeah, I, I do think there's you know, there's definitely a lot of parallels between Klopp and Ferguson. And I think that that willingness to take bullets for your players is definitely one of them. And I think that gains trust between him and players. If the players know this man has our back here no matter what, when things go bad, he will step forward and say, That's my fault. That's on me. What's happened today is on me. Whereas, we've had previous managers, and I would suggest that other than Kenny, the other four managers between Roy Evans and Klopp, Hulier, Rafa, massively, Hodgson 100%, and Rodgers, would all put the blame on the players. Hulier less so. Julio would always just put mad things and he would talk in circles, but Rafa would definitely throw players under the bus. Hodgins made a career of it and Rodgers might be the worst I've seen at throwing other people under the bus for his shortcomings. Whereas with Klopp, it doesn't happen. He just doesn't do it. He doesn't allow it to be the case. There's accountability within the group. So when someone fucks up within the group, that player takes responsibility, but to the public-facing media and whoever else, Klopp is the one that takes all that responsibility because they're his players.
0: Yeah, rightly so. I think I think it's a quite a big thing that you have to protect the group, which is a very different thing to not calling out things which are terrible, which he has done. You know, mm. if there's a, a particular game that the players as a, as a group haven't been on it, he's not afraid to say it. He's done. Things which we can see, even if he speaks about it afterwards, saying, no, no, I just want to change it, or he was tired, or there was an injury, or whatever. We can see that sometimes he'll take players off because of crap. You know, he's not yeah. someone who'll hide from it, but there's a difference between chucking them under the bus and uh, not doing anything about it in the first place.
2: Yeah, that's exactly it. Like, it's... Even in the context of where he does criticise the players, he still will, you know, will work it round to putting some of the, that blame on himself. You know, he will talk about how maybe we didn't do a good enough job preparing them, or whatever it is. He'll never flat out just blame them the way the way Brendan would, um, and he'll never throw his assistant coaches under the bus the way Brendan would. Right. We are through all the questions for today, so we'll leave it at that. A nice long podcast, but an hour twenty, I think. Um, you're back to work this week. Is there anything you've got planned, or anything you've got coming up that you want people to know about?
0: I am still off for another two days, so I haven't even started to think about it.
2: Outstanding. Right. Well, from me, from Dazzler Drinkle, and from Sparkly Boy, we'll see you next time. Bye-bye.
1: We hope you enjoyed listening to this Anfield Index show. Please be sure to subscribe to our channel so future podcasts find their way to your device automatically. There's nothing quite like fan engagement, and we'd love to know what you think of anything discussed on this show.